Hello, Spotlight friends. Today, we are joined by Christy Wilkins, a wife and a mom of six. She's a Catholic author and a speaker, and she is just all around such a gifted and talented woman. Um, And I'm so excited to have her on the show today. We are going to talk about her book, Awakening at Lourdes. We are also going to talk about her family, her experiences in community with having children with disabilities and what that looks like in her faith life and what she hopes for the church and people that interact with her family and other people with disabilities. So we're so excited to have you here and to have you share some of your wisdom and insight. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was so nice to meet you. I feel like we have been fast friends. Um, as I... <laughs> We've just shared a lovely 20 minutes. <laughs> just chatting. like a whole 20 minutes uh, before this started recording about, you know, lame TV shows. Um, but I am so happy to have you here. I have had the honor of reading your book um, and reading some of your blog posts, which, you know, you are a busy woman. So you have so many different <laughs> platforms and I just love everything that you write and you share and your vulnerability. So I'm so mm-hmm. excited to have you here. I would love for everyone to know a little bit about you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a Catholic revert. So I was a cradle Catholic. I fell away in my teen years and came back in my mid twenties. And by that point I had married a man, um, Todd Wilkins, who I thought was going to be like a diehard atheist pagan for the rest of his life. <laughs> but in, in one of God's great twists, he actually brought Todd into the church at the same time as me. Um, so we entered the church together in 2005. And currently we live outside of Austin, Texas, and we have six kids. Our oldest is a high school junior, which is bananas. And then our youngest, Oscar, is in kindergarten this year. So we've got, you know, really wild and crazy kind of complicated family life. (laughs) One of our parish priests famously called us an intense family. (laughs) (laughs) He actually said that to our face after we fed him dinner in our living room. We were chatting afterwards. He's like, y'all are really intense. We were like, thank you. So that's, you know, that's just kind of how we roll. (laughs) I love that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you see is, is, well often what you get with <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes it's a little intense i love that currently i'm you know writing on the side i've been a stay-at-home mom for many years but i just started a, a second career pivot so i began nursing school this fall and that's that's my big new project right now wow amazing she is a woman on the move <laughs> So never dull. I love that. Never dull. Also junior in high school where you look for those. I mean, everyone listening cannot (laughs) see you, but you, you're, you must share your skin routine at the end of this podcast. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's the dim lighting because the bags underneath are definitely there. Okay. That's what, (laughs) yep. Okay. I was like, it has to be a lighting effect because no, you were stunning. Yes. So I am so happy. Yes. I'm like so happy that you're here and I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your book, Awakening at Lourdes. Awakening at Lourdes is about a pilgrimage that my husband Todd and I took with our youngest son, Oscar, in 2017. 
And we were guests of an organization called the Order of Malta. And I can talk more about that. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, but it's a 900-year-old lay religious order that was founded primarily to care for the poor and the sick. And they still do this today. And one of their major works is to take sick pilgrims, which they call malads, to Lourdes. So in 2017, Oscar was one of their malads. Oscar was typically developing, but began having seizures at the age of five months. And I think he failed something like six or seven medications and a bunch of different imaging studies never panned out. Like we just couldn't get our arms around it. And my faith, which at that point I, I had really considered myself a very, a woman of strong faith an Orthodox Catholic. We were homeschooling our kids. Um, you know, if you saw us in mass, we, we looked like we had it all together, but in the face of Oscar's illness and the uncertainty around it, my faith really just fell apart. Mm. In particular, I had one very powerful experience in the Adoration Chapel at our parish, which I talk about on page two or three of the book, <laughs> um, that just shattered me. Jesus made it very clear that this was going to be Oscar's story, that this disability was going to be part of his life and part of our lives. And I really didn't know how to make sense of that. It was, you know, the classic, how could a good God allow this kind of suffering in the world moment for me. And so the Lord's pilgrimage, I undertook it almost as an act of desperation and like the ultimate test for God. And we went to the baths and Oscar was not healed. And I thought that was the end of the story. And it turns out it was just the beginning of the story. So the book is really about that. It's the rest of the story, right? Like I went there with one prayer in mind. I wanted Oscar to be healed completely. And he wasn't healed completely, although he was healed in, in demonstrable and measurable ways. But the book is really about everything that happened afterwards and all of the other kinds of healing that we experienced and the way that God was able to redeem my uncertainty and my lack of faith and my, my own suffering about my son's disability. Mm, wow, my gosh, that's such a beautiful story. And I really love and appreciate the way that you talk about pain and suffering in such a real way. And I think it's really important, you know, for someone that, you know, is experiencing, you know, that kind of hardship, right? You love your child and to see them suffer, obviously as a mother, you feel like you're suffering yourself and to wish that God would kind of take that away is honorable. And that makes sense. But then to hear God say that, like, that's not it. I'm sure that was mm -hmm. so painful, but there's this tendency to kind of flip it and say that everything is a gift, which it is, you know, but everything <laughs> is a gift and everything is great and everything is God. But when you're in pain and not acknowledging that it can, it can do more harm than good. So I love mm -hmm. how you just really acknowledge your pain and your hurt. And, you know, and something we talked about before I hear you say, you know, disability, and I would love for you to kind of share about that language. And if disability is the correct term, if there's another word that we can use, I know that, you know, with all communities, there's this kind of idea that a lot of us are ill-equipped, right? We don't really know how to converse with families that have someone <laughs> that's kind of experiencing sure. this, right? And so you're kind of like, in this weird place where you don't want to say the wrong thing, but then you kind of overcorrect and it can be more harmful than helpful. So mm -hmm, I would love mm -hmm. to know kind of what your insight on that is. Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, I think it's one that's, it's shifting currently, even as recently as, you know, four or five years ago when I started 
blogging about Oscar, the term special needs was still in pretty regular use. And I want to be clear about the fact that like, I didn't know anything about this either. When Oscar was born, I was completely ignorant about the politics and the identity stuff and, and just the way that people in the disabled community talk about their own experience of disability. So that's one thing that I think is really important for listeners to understand is the the best way to know how to talk about and how to address these things is to listen to the voices of disabled people and listen to their experience and ask them what language they prefer. For the most part these days, I think if you ask people with a disability, they will say, we want you to say the word disability. We want you to say disabled because anything else feels like a euphemism and even a dismissal of their experience. And so I've really come around to just saying the language, my child has disabilities or I'm parenting a disabled child because that's what I have heard. And that's what I have read in my own research uh, in the disability community. It turns out we, in our family, we actually have not just Oscar, but we have other people with hidden disabilities that like they're able to mask them more in public. And I think it becomes a little bit stickier there, but even then often people who have those hidden disabilities, they still want to use that language because it gives them a tool. It gives them a way to talk about their experience in the world. And it gives us a way to acknowledge that the experience of someone with disabilities in the world is very different from the experience of someone whose body and mind are completely typically developing and sort of more in the the norm of the bell curve of human experience. I did want to jump back to one thing that you said earlier about wanting disabilities to be healed. I think that's something that was actually healed in me in Lourdes. I was able to recognize that Oscar was suffering. Yes. Like he had a lot of medical challenges. He endured a lot of really traumatic medical experiences. I mean, his seizures alone, he was suffering, but most of the day-to-day suffering that was going on in the house during that year was my own emotional suffering around what Oscar was experiencing. And in a lot of ways, I was even projecting that onto him when I was praying for his healing. And so another thing that's really common in the disability community is people saying, I'm so tired of well-meaning Christians walking up without even knowing me, without even introducing themselves and saying, I'm praying for your healing. And so that was something that God really revealed to me in Lourdes was that Oscar didn't need to be healed. Like, yes, his life is difficult. Yes, he has medical challenges. Yes, he even suffers. But God had literally told me in explicit language and in complete sentences that that was Oscar's life, that that was his cross and that was my cross and that it wasn't going to be taken away. And I think the thing that was healed in me was sort of my ableist assumption that it needed to be. Um, So I came home from Lourdes and a lot of that lens had really been completely shifted in a new way in, in the way that I was thinking about Oscar and his disability and what the rest of his life with us would look like. Wow, beautiful. So God operated in a way that you didn't even expect, right? By oh no, healing no. your I mean, I perception. I wanted him to heal my faith. Um, yeah. But in a lot of ways he healed like my understanding of what it means to be a human being in the world. Ooh, man. God really comes through in those <laughs> moments that you're like, <laughs> "Oh, man, wasn't asking for that, but thank right. you." Oh my gosh, that is that is beautiful. This episode is brought to you by Hallow. 
the number one Catholic app for prayer, meditation, music, and more. Hallow features litanies, novenas, and other challenges to get you praying more often and connect with your community. It also features Bible stories and guest sessions from well-known Catholic speakers like Father Mike Schmitz, Bishop Barron, Jonathan Rumi from Chosen, Dr. Scott Hahn, and Father Mark Mary. Hallow is an amazing resource for any Catholic looking to dive deeper into their prayer life, find more peace, and ultimately grow closer to God. Make sure to check out Hollow at hollow.com slash Ave Spotlight. Hollow.com slash Ave Spotlight. I know too that you have also spoken about being pro-life and what that means, especially in this community. There's, I mean, there's so many communities that kind of don't get touched on when we're, when we're using our pro-life language, right? And there's the consistent life ethic that we're all called to live as Catholics that, you know, obligates us to not just be interested in a lot in things that are easy or in any point and then exit of any person's life, right? We're supposed to be interested and intrigued at every point of every person's life, regardless of who they are or what they're going through or whatever. And so I do think that there's some groups that aren't really talked about as much, right? Because it can be challenging because then again, mm-hmm. people feel ill-equipped people feel maybe a little uncomfy and they don't know what to say or what to do. And so you talk a lot about, you know, what being pro-life means when you're talking about people with disabilities. And can you just talk a little bit more about that? Sure. One thing that I think a lot of people are not aware of is that we all agree that the Nazi regime of eugenics that occurred before and during the Holocaust was a horror like that, you know, I think we can, we can agree universally that that was a bad, bad thing. But what mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize is that the Nazi policies were born directly out of the eugenics policies in the United States in the 1920s. The Nazis literally researched existing state laws in the U.S. and modeled their policies about racial cleansing on policies of eugenics. And those eugenic policies were primarily, some of it was racial, but much more. It was about sterilization of the feeble-minded. And that legacy still haunts us today. Even people who in most other cases would be completely pro-life, they get a little squeamish when we talk about things like fetal abnormalities and life-limiting diagnoses and the 20-week ultrasound. And I think that's sort of the last frontier of pro-life ministry. Like we all recognize that it's terrible to tell a woman who is in poverty that she shouldn't have her baby just because she's in poverty or a woman who's a teenager that she shouldn't have her baby just because she's a teenager. But it's much harder to accompany a mother who has just received a devastating diagnosis for her unborn child and to say, we still love you. We still love your child. And we are still here to provide for whatever you and your child need both now and after birth. Mm. Because often what happens is families who receive a diagnosis like that really aren't offered any choice other than termination, or at least that's the first thing out of their doctor's mouths. And if they choose to do something other than termination, they hear about it at every appointment for the rest of the pregnancy. And it's a really uphill battle. And often it's a battle that they're facing alone. And even after the child is born, often communities will come together in really beautiful ways to support the birth. 
like they often will at any kind of acute moment in life when someone goes into the hospital or gets a new cancer diagnosis, but it's much harder to support those families in the chronic way that they need to be supported over the long term. And so it often comes down to, you know, the handful of friends who are there. But I think as an institutional church, we still really have a long way to go. We're just at the very beginning of learning how to develop those programs, how to accompany those families, and how to really put some feet on our pro-life witness after the birth for families that are not just facing like the challenge of an unexpected baby, but an unexpected baby with profound and lifelong medical needs. Mm, Wow. You're so right. And that's something that we don't really think about a lot. I think that it's so important to have conversations around people that face challenges after they give birth to their child, Mm -hmm. right? I think a lot of the times we think about monetary challenges and we'll be ready to donate diapers or food or whatever. But then when it comes to, like you were saying, just kind of living day to day, even with your other children that have disabilities that you can't necessarily see, right? Um, And how Mm -hmm. challenging that must be, it would almost seem as if it was easier to kind of help if I knew that my son or my daughter we're struggling with walking, right? Because then it would be easier because then people could say, oh, well, I absolutely know Chanel's child needs a wheelchair. Chanel's child needs crutches, et cetera. But if Mm -hmm. my son or daughter struggles with, you know, or not struggles with, but experiences autism or experiences, you know, like whatever kind of disability that it would be much Mm -hmm. more challenging for me to have to explain that all the time. Um, And for someone else to feel like maybe they don't really know what to do. And I would love for you to share ways that you would say that someone could kind of enter into a life, obviously, without also making a family or a person seem like they're this anomaly, um, because you are Mm -hmm. also just human beings. (laughs) So how would you, how would you kind of say people can just kind of live with, with y'all, you know, like what, I mean, because your children are experiencing life as children and you hope for them that they get to be children that just live and, you know, have fun and have experiences. And so what would you say to people just kind of like, especially in the Catholic sphere, how would you recommend just kind of living amongst people with disabilities? Oh, that's such a great question. There is a resource that I found online and I I don't remember the source of it, but it's something like the five steps of disability awareness. And it's such a fascinating spectrum. And I think it really speaks to the question you're asking because, you know, you start out basically in ignorance where you don't, you don't know anyone with a disability. You don't know what it's like to live with a disability. And so it's sort of like over there, those people, And you move through that through a couple other stages. The middle stage is something like pity, where you realize like, oh gosh, that's really sad. It must be very hard for you. I'll pray for you. (laughs) But the end goal where we really want to be is co-laborers. Because yes, Oscar has many needs. He has many more needs than a typical six-year-old does. But he also has a lot of gifts to offer the church. And the thing that people often don't understand, the thing that churches often don't understand about their members with disabilities is that Yes, they need education. Yes, they need care and assistance, but they also need the opportunity to participate in the liturgy, to participate in ministry, to be full and active agents in the church and not just passive recipients of charity and pity and prayers and concern. So that's the main recommendation I have is to for every church and every parish and every ministry to try to think about ways where people with disabilities cannot just be the target of intervention, 
but oh. actually be the co-laborers invited to the table, invited to participate as full members of the community. And that's true whether we're talking about participation at mass from the pews or participation at mass in a ministerial role, participation in all of the sacraments, participation in faith formation. Like we're getting ready to start first communion preparation with Oscar right now. And like, what is that going to look like? We don't, we don't actually know yet, but that, that needs to be a conversation and not just a let's view Oscar as an object or a problem that needs to be solved. Like Oscar needs to be brought more fully into the community on a practical level. It's just things like saying hello, <laughs> inviting us to join things and, and recognizing that we're going to say no a lot because our life is complex and it's hard to get out the door sometimes, but to keep asking anyway, you know, I think that sometimes we get stuck in this, in this trap where we're like, you invite someone three or four times and then they say no. And you're like, Oh, they must not be interested, but really keep asking and keep inviting because the bar is higher just in, in terms of being able to accept those invitations when, when you're a family who lives with someone who has disabilities of any kind, hidden or visible. And then again, Think about ways in every in every ministry, in every part of the parish life where people with disabilities can be co-laborers with you, where they can be active ministers in their own right. Mm, I love that. Oh my gosh. And this one time that I was at mass, there were two young children, probably like seven and five, and both of them were on the spectrum. And mm-hmm. one of them was having a very hard time just sitting for the whole homily, kept getting up and down, kept walking up and down the pew. The, his father just kept like kind of pacing behind him, seeing where he's going. And then his daughter just kept kind of making noises and was getting really fidgety. And so then the father took both of their hands and started walking towards the back because it was the middle of the homily. And, you know, he felt as if they were being distracting. And I remember the priest stopped his homily and he was like, Hey, it's okay. Like, it's fine. Oh, I love that. He was like, please stay. It's okay. Like, please stay. And he came back to the pew and everyone in their immediate area was like, it's fine. Like no problem. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah. That was one of the first times in all my years of being Catholic, I'd ever seen such an acknowledgement rather than this, like, Oh gosh, Oh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, sorry for them. And it was just this acknowledgement of like, it's fine. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Like we are all here, you know, and it meant so much. That's so Christ-like too. That's so Christ-like, you know, Jesus wants everybody there, everybody, everybody. And the Mm -hmm. community is really impoverished when everybody isn't there. Mm -hmm. It was so evident to me when we were in Lourdes with Oscar, like I thought we were there to be served, but Oscar brought so much joy to the people around him. Like he was an Mm -hmm. active minister of joy on that pilgrimage. And it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in standards of behavior and, um, and to not realize that everybody's fighting a battle that we don't know anything about. And so when you see that child misbehaving at mass, you blame the parents when in fact, maybe there's something going on that you don't understand. So I love that the priest didn't just, you know, not call them out negatively, but actively said, come, come back. We want you here. That's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. And it was, yeah, it was such a powerful thing to see. And to, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I know that it meant so much to, you know, that father, because he was just so emotional when he sat back down with his children. And I just feel like being able to navigate 
you know, similar to my friends, but not in the same way, but similar to my friends that have young children, you know, just navigating the like, oh my gosh, you know, running, 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 screaming, throwing things like wow, all the time. And there's just this constant trying to like make sure that you're not being an inconvenience, but being told all the time, of course, you're not an inconvenience. Like you're an asset. You're a part of the body of Christ, you know, but then seeing it in action was just such a beautiful thing. And so I just think that's so important that we talk about what it looks like, like you were sharing, you know, not only in practice, but just like practically what it looks like to worship Mm -hmm. with people that Mm -hmm. have disabilities, you know, and, and what it looks like to kind of interact and invite people and, you know, and understand that things can happen that are out of control, but it doesn't mean that you as a family, like you guys don't want to come to things. It just means that, (laughs) Hey, like (laughs) I can't at this particular time, you know, and, um, I love that. And at the end of every episode, we ask each guest, what is something that kind of gives them hope? Um, It can be recently, it can be lately, it can be in the future, something you're looking forward to. If you need time to think about it, I can go first. Or if you're ready, you can go first. How are you feeling? I I think I'm ready. Okay, go ahead. All right. The thing that is giving me hope these days is that I am seeing more and more people who are willing to sit in uncomfortable spaces. Mm. They are willing to kind of live in the tension in between earth and heaven, in between justice and mercy, in between black and white, Mm. and actually try to have conversations there and not try to just rush through it to a solution or to the end. I think that that's a, a really adult skill and a really human skill and, and really a very, Christian skill to be able to live with that kind of charity in a place where you're uncomfortable. And and I feel like the pandemic, I'm starting to see more and more that people are are willing to be there. I know like we've had we've had a rough couple of years and there are obviously a lot of places where that is not happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do see a little bit of a groundswell and that does give me hope. Ah, that is beautiful. Yes, I love that. Love the tension. Well, something that gives me hope recently is we've been hanging out a lot with my cousin, Debbie. We've been trying to like take her out and about. She is on a feeding tube. So most of her days are like inside watching NCIS, which she's super into. (laughs) But, you know, it's nice to like go outside. She lives in Florida now. So we try to like get her some sunshine And it's just something that gives me hope is going over to her house. And I've always considered myself one of her favorite cousins. I'm sure I am. Every time I go over now, she's just like always so happy to see me. She gives me extra tight hugs and we watch Law and Order together and NCIS together. And I just, I'm just so hopeful that like she is living a life of peace and fun and freedom. And I hope that she feels like she is a valuable member of our family because she really is. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I'm hoping that through those just daily interactions of like going over to her house or like taking her to TJ Maxx or going on a drive together that she feels like valued and that she's 53. So that, you know, in her older age, she can feel like you know, she's finally like having some fun, you know, because as much oh, as I love that, yeah, as much as a lot of us think she like doesn't know what's going on, we always say Debbie is very smart. Oh, yeah, <laughs> she yes. knows exactly yeah. what is happening, and she will she will say some words to you if she doesn't agree with what you're saying. <laughs> 
we see will, that with Oscar too. Like yeah. he, he uses it to his advantage if he thinks it would be better for him to mm-hmm. pretend not to know what's going on. Oh yeah, <laughs> but, but I'm like, Debbie we're totally on to him. <laughs> she'll say some no- yeah, she'll say some noises in your direction if she like doesn't like what you're saying. So I'm hopeful that she feels welcome and loved in our family as she always has been, but especially since now she lives down here in Florida with um, more of us that we can like have some fun together and take her yeah. outside and yada yeah. yada. So yeah, so I'm hopeful for that. And I'm I'm really grateful to have had this conversation with you and to have you on the show. Thank you so much for giving me like an hour of your time because I talked to you about Grey's Anatomy <laughs> for the first 20 minutes of our <laughs> of our time. It was worth it. Worth yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll make sure to put your website and everything in our show notes so people can check that out. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you so much to Christy for being our guest. I'm looking forward to next week when I sit down with Eve Tushnet, author of Gay and Catholic and her new book, Tenderness. It's going to be a great episode. I'll talk to y'all next week. God bless. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.